So we've had a, a whirlwind of a few weeks. Uh, after our planned summer vacation uh, was canceled due to COVID hitting our family, we did finally get away late last week to spend a few days with family and then a couple days on a road trip, <clears throat> kind of doing some some fun little, little things out uh, toward New York and Connecticut and then back home. It wasn't a massive trip, but it did involve quite a bit of driving for little chunks of a, a few hours at a time. And when we do that, because I'm usually the one driving, my wife Bethany is the one who ends up coordinating the entertainment for our trips. So we do have a DVD player. Sometimes she throws in DVDs or CDs or something like that. And uh, and for this trip, on one of our, our longer sections, um, on the way back home, she pulled out a... Uh, a audiobook or an, an audio recording, dramatic recording of, of a story. And, and the story uh, is about the life of Cory Ten Boom. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of Cory Ten Boom before, but, uh, but she, um, she lived in Holland during the, uh, the Second World War. And as a Christ follower, she and her family helped hide uh, Jewish, um, Jewish refugees, essentially, um, that, uh, from, from persecution in their, in their, uh, attic in a safe room. And so there's a book called The Hiding Place that has made her story famous. And, um, and it's, it's an incredible story, but it's really hard story. And so anyways, Bethany had brought this book, um, or this book on tape along for us to listen to. And, um, and so the kids were kind of like doing the eye roll thing where, you know, when your mom says that there's a, a book on tape that you should listen to, I guess that's an old, old phrase, but anyways, an, an audiobook or a story, you know, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I knew just enough of, of the story of Corey Ten Boom to know how difficult of a story it is. You know, it's a story where she loses most of her family in a concentration camp and it's, it's just full of suffering. And so I kind of joined in with the kids of like, ah, oh, I don't know. And then Bethany looked over at me and she gave me one of those looks that a wise woman gives to a lesser man. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, one of those looks that, uh, that says, whose side are you on right now? And, uh, and quickly helps you realize whose side you need to be on. And so anyways, um, so I, I changed my tune a little bit. Um, but, uh, but to be honest, deep down inside, you know, on a road trip, I'm, I'm thinking, man, who wants to think about a story that is so centered on suffering, you know? But we did listen to it, and we listened to it for hours, and it's a hard story. But yet there's something absolutely captivating about a Christ follower walking through pain and loss and continuing to come back to Jesus in the midst of it. The, the story was incredible and, and redemptive and, and hopeful, even though it was also painful. And that's what's possible. See, out of, out of suffering comes the story of hope. At least it, it can. And for that reason, pain, hurt, suffering, it's worth talking about, even if we would maybe rather not enter into that conversation. <clears throat> so, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've been talking about all of these different topics of everything is holy for for all summer, really, and, and taking a look at all of these different different areas where when we see them in light of Christ, we begin to, to have a different view 
about all of it. We believe that Jesus transforms and changes everything and that all the earth is God's. And so we, we learn to see things differently. And while this conversation that we're about to have is a difficult one, I believe it's maybe one of the most important ones that we could possibly have all summer long. And so this week we want to talk about the fact that our hurt is holy. In my uh, mother and father-in-law's herb garden behind their house, there's currently a small rock. You can see it on the screen. And, and on that rock is, is painted these words, you will come to see God most clearly in the moments that you wish never were. I've come to believe that there is immense truth in that statement. You will come to see God most clearly in the moments you wish never were. That rock holds deep meaning for my mother and father-in-law because a few months ago, uh, my father-in-law had a stroke that changed life significantly. And he was supposed to be here this morning uh, sharing with me. Uh, and I deeply desire that one day you, you do hear his own perspective on his journey. But um, because of some other family losses that happened this week, that was unable to happen. But there's truth. There's truth that in our pain, we see God in new ways and we see God work in new ways. However, before we get too deeply into this, we need to be really honest and call out the potential trauma and the unhelpful theology that this topic can sometimes bring up. It's important to clarify here that the, the, the title for today is not our hurt is good, but rather our hurt is holy. I think sometimes during this conversation, there can be confusion that leads to hurt, that leads to, to re-traumatizing people. When the, the nature of God's heart becomes linked to suffering, it can get really, really messy. I have an old friend who has uh, lost his father when he was very young. And people in his church told him that God just needed him in heaven more than my friend needed him on earth. And after that, my friend had no interest in ever pursuing Christian faith again because apparently God's priorities didn't matter regardless of the amount of suffering that it caused this young man. I think we need to, to look at the idea of, of when we talk about good coming out of suffering, that we do not mean that God is the author of that good, but rather the redeemer or the author of that pain, but rather the redeemer of it. There's an interesting story that in, in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph at the end of the, the book of Genesis that can really, I think, help us understand this potentially in a new light. If you aren't familiar with the story of Joseph, it's a story, I'll just give a quick, quick recap, a story of a young man who was one of uh, 12 brothers, one of the youngest, but he was the favorite of his father. And his father, in that favoritism, created a massive amount of jealousy among the other brothers. Okay, and so we won't get into the details. All you need to know is that the brothers conspired against Joseph, thought about killing him, changed their minds slightly, sold him into slavery where he was taken to Egypt. Unjustly. In the midst of this injustice, as he continued to do his best to do good and became a man of integrity, still seeking after God, um, he was once again falsely accused 
of assault and jailed. And in the midst of this, God did give him special um, special moments of clarity where he was able to interpret dreams and he was able to hold on to his faith. And eventually the door opened for him to rise to prominence and to join Pharaoh in leadership of Egypt. And during that time, his brothers were experiencing a famine in Canaan. And his brothers traveled to Egypt, having no idea that Joseph is still alive, to beg for extra provisions to get them through the famine. When they do, they don't even recognize that Joseph is the one that they are interacting with. Fast forward to that story. After they realize who he is, um, there is some reconciliation, but there also is continued fear on on behalf of the brothers. So eventually the father dies and the brothers move toward Egypt um, to join Joseph. And when they do, here's one of the final verses in the entire story. It's in Genesis 50. And they're, they're coming to Joseph and they are still terrified because of what they have done to him that he will do to them. And in verse 50, chapter, uh, chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, we're told this, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. A statement like this one that Joseph made can feel a little complicated, right? On one hand, I love that something so beautiful can come out of such a horrible situation. But on the other hand, what does it mean that God intended it? Did God intentionally have Joseph suffer years of alienation and imprisonment for doing nothing wrong? That doesn't seem like God's character as revealed in Jesus. But interestingly, a quick dive even into that phrase reveals a new layer. The Hebrew word that Joseph uses here is kasav. All right? Kasav. And it means more than simply planning for something to happen. Kasav, sometimes translated as intended, is also translated as to imagine, to devise, or, or to invent. It's a word about creating something new, something that is surprising and something that is different. So while Joseph's brothers were trying to destroy Joseph and imagining ways to do it, God was doing something imaginative as well, something nobody could see coming. God was inventing. God was opening a door for re- redemption and repurposing the pain and the disruption that Joseph would have to endure at the hands of his brothers and instead offer something beautiful and imagine something new and something exceedingly good, the saving of many lives. Because in the midst of a horrible situation, breathtaking beauty is always possible when God is at work. We serve and we follow a God who repurposes and redeems our pain. But it's, it's, disingenuous, honestly, to simply move to what can happen as an end result of pain, and specifically using a famous Bible story that has a pretty wonderful ending, no less, because in our lives, sometimes suffering doesn't seem like it ends. And sometimes, honestly, it doesn't. And even in that, I believe that there is deeply, deeply good news that can be held and attained through Jesus. It can be received if we allow it. So I want to offer a few really big picture ways that even when we're in the middle of pain, 
It's holy. So, how can our hurt be holy? I want to offer three distinct avenues of how our hurt can be holy. The first, and these are very simple, by the way. So the first one is that our hurt is holy because it moves God toward us. All right, so we have this this picture of God here and the arrows, if you can't see it, on the whiteboard. God toward us. The scriptures reveal that Jesus enters into our pain with us. And anywhere that Jesus is becomes holy ground. In the Beatitudes, at the beginning of of Matthew 5, when Jesus is teaching the blessings, the happiness, he's talking about things that sound really messed up and upside down because he's talking about people in pain. He says, blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit or poor, if you're reading Luke's version. All these these blessings to things that are not great things, to be really honest. And, and, And when you dig into this and you see that Jesus is beginning his proclamation about the kingdom of God with these words, he is not saying, blessed are you when you hurt because it's good. What he's saying is, blessed are you when you hurt because God sees it and responds to it in a unique way that is unlike anything else. God is drawn to pain because God is a great comforter. We see the stories over and over again confirming the nature and character of God being specifically pointed and directed toward those who suffer. I think an example of this that is really fascinating about how our hurt is holy because it moves God toward us is in the book of John with Jesus. In John 11, uh, Jesus finds out that his friend Lazarus is sick. And he's deathly sick. And he gets news of it when he's in another town. And it's a bit uncomfortable because when Jesus gets news of it, Jesus seems to understand that Lazarus is going to die, but he's not in a hurry. And that makes me a little uncomfortable, to be honest. Um, But... But what we get here, here's what I really want you to, to, to lean into. When he hears that Lazarus is sick and, and, and Jesus actually knows that he's actually died or is about to die, what he says to his disciples is in John 11, verse 11, after he said this, he went to, on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he went on and told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So friends, we have no question in this exact moment, no question at all, that Jesus knows that he is going to do something amazing and redemptive and miraculous. In fact, John sets up the whole book of John. This is the final sign of Jesus. There are these, these, this set of signs, seven signs in the book of John, and this is the ultimate one that will eventually point toward the resurrection of Jesus himself, okay, which is the final sign. But, but what we get is this, this moment where we have no question that Jesus knows he's about to shock and wow everyone, and there is going to be great celebrating and great beauty because this, this pain is going to be redeemed, he knows the ultimate story in this, in this case. So he goes on. But here's what's so fascinating. The story goes on, but 20 verses later in, in John 11, when he gets into town and he, he speaks with Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, he gets into town and finally he, is, he moves closer to where Lazarus is lying dead. 
And he asks this question in John eleven thirty four. It says, Jesus is speaking here. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then one of the most profound verses in the scriptures, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Now it's profound enough that Jesus wept at all, the God of the universe shedding tears. But it's even more profound when we know that Jesus has an exact idea of what's about to happen. Jesus knows that within minutes, Lazarus is going to be breathing again. People will be in awe and they will be rejoicing and celebrating. Jesus knows the end of the story and at the exact same time, he starts weeping. Why? (laughs) He cries because Jesus feels pain with us. The ultimate beautiful end of the story does not negate the pain of the moment and God allows space for that. So instead of Instead of honest pain and beautiful hope being strangers, honest pain and beautiful hope become partners. So this is why we cannot simply, when we go through pain or see others go through pain, we can't simply shrug it off and say, it's okay, God's going to make everything right in the end. That's true. We believe that. We believe that God will redeem and restore all things and that all tears will be wiped away from every eye one day. And yet at the exact same time, We don't ever negate the pain that we experience as something that should be ignored or shifted or moved away from because it's not appropriate. Jesus says, your pain at the brokenness of life is not only appropriate, but I will enter it with you and I feel it with you. I am coming to meet you in your pain. Our hurt is holy because it moves God toward us. The second movement is that our hurt is holy because it moves us toward God. <laughs> so not only do we see in this, in this world of, of, of suffering that God moves toward us when we hurt, but when we hurt in our weakness, we learn trust and we learn vulnerability. This is about learning to trust God. I don't know how many times in this series of conversations we've brought up this passage from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, but it's been at least four weeks that that we've hit on this because it's such a profound passage. But in it, Paul is writing about his own journey of what he calls this thorn in the flesh, right? And he doesn't tell us what the thorn is, I think because if we found out what it was specifically, maybe we wouldn't be able to see what God wants to speak to us about. But this thorn in the flesh, this, this struggle, this hurt that Paul carries with him, that he can't seem to shake. And in the midst of not being able to shake, here's what he learns. He hears the voice of Jesus speaking to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. Paul says, because I've experienced this grace Because I've finally learned that God's grace comes to me in new ways when I have nothing left to give. That I will embrace the weakness and not try to fight it. Because there's power in my vulnerability. In his suffering, 
He hears, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. You can trust me, Jesus says. You can lean on me. You can fall on me. You can have life in me even when you feel like you have nowhere to go. And so when we are stripped raw and naked, when we are vulnerable and when we are weak, we learn to trust God in the vulnerability. We learn that we are worthy of love and able to receive grace exactly as we are. Not the person that we long to be, but the person that we are right now. Not in the situation that we long to have, but in the situation that we are in right now. Our hurt is holy because it moves us toward God. An interesting connection point with this um, movement toward God in pain is that when we suffer, additionally, it becomes an opportunity to identify and share with Jesus our suffering Savior. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 speaks of wanting to know Christ, and he says, I want to know Christ to, by experiencing the power of resurrection and participating in his sufferings. So in his sufferings, every time that Paul, in his attempts to be faithful, suffers, it's a way that he gets to know Jesus better. Know a God who entered a world and was willing to suffer. Every moment, Paul sees his pain and says, it's an opportunity to feel closer to Jesus because we share the same experience. It's profound. Finally, um, the third movement. So we have the arrows from God to us. And we have the arrows from us to God. And finally, our hurt is holy because it moves us toward others. The reality is, friends, and it's a reality that we don't often willingly want to face, but it's true. Our pain is the most powerful avenue to empathy. Our pain is the most powerful avenue to empathy. This is a broad statement, and it's applicable on so many levels. But I find it interesting, on one level here, as we look back into the scriptures in the Torah, in the book of of Deuteronomy, that, that past suffering is clearly repurposed by God to be an avenue for compassion. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, when God is, is teaching his people how to represent him in the world, how to be one, one of the things, it's just a, a quick glimpse, but it, it illustrates this point here. Um, and, and it's in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. See that again? God moving to us in pain, right? God is the God of those who suffer. So he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. This is the important part now. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. You, you, see, what, you see what they're saying here? You see what, what, what God is, is revealing? What, he, what God is saying is that, listen, you know what it feels like to be an outsider. You know what it feels like to not know where your food or your clothing is coming from. You know what it feels like to not have a home to call your own. So you are in the perfect position to make sure that others don't feel that way. You know the pain of it. You know the struggle. You are in a unique position to care for others who may find themselves in the same boat. See, when we understand hurt, And when we walk through it, we grow in compassion. 
It doesn't have to even be an equivalency. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that my hurt is the same as yours. See, here's the thing about suffering. We all suffer, and if we let suffering do its work in us when it comes, doesn't mean we welcome it, but if we let the work happen to transform us, we become more compassionate people because we look at others and we see that they suffer too and that they are worthy of compassion and love and care. I mentioned earlier uh, the hiding place story of, of Corey Ten Boom, and, uh, and one of the the most unbelievable parts of the story was that uh, Corey Ten Boom was um, was uh, forced to live in Ravensbrook or in Ravenbrook concentration camp with her sister, and that's where her sister died. And her sister died only ten or eleven days right before Ten Boom was released. Um, but but in the midst of that, um, in the midst of that, what ended up happening was Corey often struggled with anger at those who had done such evil the officers in the concentration camp, her fellow Dutch people who betrayed their own fellow countrymen and sold them out and, and shared where they were hiding. And she had such anger that she wrestled with God about. And her sister, Betsy, in the midst of this, had been given an extra gift of faith and compassion from God. And Betsy was always encouraging her to look out and see the pain because they had been through pain. So to look out and notice that officer and say, what kind of suffering must that officer be going through for them to inflict pain on so many other people? What anguish of soul they are deserving of your compassion too. Lord, have mercy on them. See, after the war and after Betsy's death, Corey opened a recovery house in the Netherlands. And the most profound thing is that it was open to both the victims of the Holocaust as well as to those in her country who had worked with the Nazis and turned in their own neighbors. She had seen that their spirits had been broken and that they had suffered too. And she knew suffering, so she was compelled to offer compassion in every way. It's amazing. It's the redemption of God. And it doesn't always happen happy and peaceably. And of course, you can't even tell a story like this, like Cory Ten Boom's acting like there was any happiness or peace outside of that which God provided. There was unbelievable devastation. It didn't resolve nicely, but there was redemption. But sometimes we, we think and assume that redemption, God's redemption of our pain, it looks like a pain-free existence. But that's not the case. God's redemption of our pain looks like a life of trust and peace in God, regardless of what happens. God's redemption of our pain does not mean a pain-free existence, but rather the gift of God that leads us to absolute trust and peace with God, regardless of what happens. And again, this isn't a guarantee by any stretch. Suffering suffering does not always lead to any of these. Our hurt does not always lead us to a deeper experience of God, and our hurt does not always move us toward others in compassion. See, suffering will lead us in one of two ways. It'll lead us in this direction of a softened heart, or it will lead us in this direction of a hardened heart. And I know that you can probably look around in your own lives and maybe within your own spirit, and you can see where pain has hardened you and where pain has softened you. 
And while we trust the work of God in this, there is also a work that we must do. And we must choose if we will move toward God in the midst of our pain or if we will harden ourselves and become more embittered by the things that we have experienced that have hurt us. All of this, though, friends, it leads to one truly central theme. And that is this. Pain is transformative. And Jesus will do a profound work in us if we look to him through it. Pain is transformative, but we will be changed within and outside in our actions if we look to Jesus and let him work in us. This is why, as we get ready to, to close here in a moment with one final um, one final thing I'd like to share. Um, this is why the words of First Peter are so profound to me. And Peter was writing uh, to a vast, a vast group of churches, not not simply one church like Paul did, where where many of the writings are very specific to that that city or town. Peter's writing to a, a number of people, many of whom were experiencing persecution and exhaustion and hurt. And here's what he says near the end of his of his letter in First Peter five. He says, "In the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen." The God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And to Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Note what this passage does not say. It doesn't say, don't worry, your suffering will end. Quickly. Even though we know it will end ultimately. But it also doesn't say that God's the author of the suffering. It doesn't say God's holding this carrot out and saying, I'm just going to, or, or, or holding you over the fire is maybe a better, a better um, description and say, I'm going to let you dangle. I'm going to let you hurt for a little while, but then don't worry. Once the torture gets too bad, I'll pull you out of it. That's not what is being said here. What is being said is that after you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you, meaning that after suffering takes it's time on your spirit you will begin to be able, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, to see God more clearly. And that God will always be working to restore in the midst of suffering. But sometimes it takes us experiencing and leaning into that hurt before we can begin to see what redemption looks like. God's not pulling the strings. God is offering a hand of love. Suffering leads to restoration, and specifically in this passage, it's in the form of strength and steadiness of faith. Friends, that should give us such, such immense hope. I want to end this, um, this reflection by, by returning to the idea of God's compassion with us in our pain. Our pain is not just purposeful as if, like today, is here's a three steps to a better you through suffering. Our hurt is holy because God welcomes us to move toward him with arms wide enough to receive it all. The transformative work doesn't happen by forcing it. There's no timeline. That's not how pain works. We simply learn 
to receive the love of a father and knowing that we can be honest, that we're not alone, and that the story of goodness is still within reach. So we've done a lot of the mind here, in my opinion, a lot of thinking about hurt and how it's holy, and I'd like to end by clearly moving to the realm of the heart. There's a book that I use of liturgy, of prayers, called Every Moment Holy. It, uh, it kind of inspired the, uh, the whole title of this series, that everything is holy, um, this summer. But it's a, it's a prayer, and, uh, and it's a prayer, it's a liturgy for those who weep without knowing why. And I stumbled upon this after I had uh, written this message, and it felt like I used it in order to write the message because it seems like it was so appropriately spirit-led and, and fitting. But I'd like to invite you just to, if it's helpful, just to close your eyes, just to receive this prayer, maybe to be honest about the pain that you've been experiencing, to just throw yourself onto Christ, to know that it's a safe landing, and to, uh, to acknowledge the moment that you're in so that you can receive the grace that Jesus longs to bring. So please join me in just sitting with this prayer. And afterwards, without any further notice, we will move directly into a time of receiving grace by coming forward toward to receive the bread and the cup, the representation of the body and blood of Christ in communion. There is so much lost in this world, O Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. What is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down. What was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell, haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now. Is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why? It might be anything. And then again, it might be everything. For we feel this. We who are your children feel this empty space where some lost thing should have rested in its perfection. And we pine for those nameless glories, and we pine for all the wasted stories in our world, and we pine these present wounds. We pine for our children and for their children too, knowing each will have to prove how this universal pain is also personal. We pine for all children born into these days of desolation, whose regal robes were torn to tatters before they were even swaddled in them. O Lord, how can we not weep when waking each day in this veil of tears? How can we not feel those pains when we, wounded by others, soon learn to wound as well, and even in the end, wound ourselves? We grieve what we cannot heal, and we grieve our half-belief, having made an uneasy peace with disillusion, aligning ourselves with a self-protective lie that would have us kill our best hopes just to keep our disappointments half-confined. We feel ourselves wounded by that that is wretched, foul, and fell, 
but we are sometimes wounded by the beauty as well. For when it whispers, it whispers of the world that might have been our birthright, now banished, now withdrawn, as unreachable to our wounded hearts as ancient seas receding down some endless dark. We weep, O oh Lord, for those things that, though nameless, are still lost. We weep for the cost of our rebellions, for the mocking and hollowing of holy things, for the inward curve of our souls, for the evidences of death outworked in every field and tree and blade of grass, crept up in every creature, alert in every longing, infecting all fabric of life. We weep for the leers our daughters will endure, as if to be made in reflection of your beauty were a fault for which they must pay. We weep for our sons, sabotaged by profiteers who seek to warp their dreams before they even come of age. We weep for all the twisted alchemies of our times that would turn what might have been gold into crowns of cheap tin and then toss them into refuse bins as if love could ever be a cast-off thing one might simply be done with. We weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory, but are now their own shadow twins. We have wept so often, and we will weep again. And yet, there is something in our tears, a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness, like a tiny flame, when we are told, Jesus also wept. You wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O oh Lord, heaved with the grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. O Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession? That we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burdened work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep and don't know why, it is because the curse has ranged so far, so wide, that we weep at that which breaks your heart, because it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot even explain our weeping, even to ourselves. If that is true, then let such weeping be received, O Lord, as an intercession of newly forged holy sorrow, let our tears anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. O oh Lord, if it please you, when your children weep and don't know why, yet use our tears to baptize what you love. Amen. May God be with you and with each of us in the journey of our pain, our comfort, and our redemption. Amen. <laughs>